Good morning, church. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 6 and stand together as we read verses 25 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we need your help this morning to understand your word. We pray that you would enlighten our minds by your spirit. Pray that you would conform our lives to your word and make us look more like Christ. That's what we want. We want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to exercise your imagination with me for a moment as we consider something I'm expanding on and borrowing from D.A. Carson as we meditate on our text today. So use your imagination here. I want you to picture four men. All four are Christians. The first man is best described as happy-go-lucky, and at his worst, he can be described as irresponsible. His mind is only for today. And the word anxiety does not occur in his dictionary. He almost never starts anything and can hardly finish anything. And if he does finish something, it's almost never done on time. He is remarkably nice and personable and maybe the most agreeable person you could meet. But he doesn't much think of other people and their suffering because he doesn't much think of suffering at all. He thinks he's a really great Christian. He believes he has stupendous faith because he never worries. The second man is almost the exact opposite. He is incredibly responsible, almost to a fault. His savings account is varied and healthy. He works himself into the ground for his family, and he suffers from poor health due to stress. He is a chronic worrier about every detail, but he thinks of himself as a planner. Not only does he do things on time, but he can't conceive of someone else being late at anything at all, as if it's a moral conundrum. 
Bad news is constantly on his mind, and he worries about everything from his money to his family to the state of the world on a constant circular basis. His relationships with other people are strained because he comes off as irritable and worrisome and argumentative. He goes to church, and he thinks he does a good job, but he's worried that he hasn't done enough. The third man is a devout Christian. He prays constantly and reads the word regularly. He has a healthy work-life balance. And he has healthy relationships both in his family and in his social circles and in his church. And he serves his church and is glad to do it. But he's constantly racked by waves of unexplained anxiety. He takes medication for it but it only takes the edge off. He sees a counselor for it, but that only helps a little. He tries his best and does the things he knows he's supposed to do as a Christian, but he feels like he doesn't live up to the Christian standard of do not worry because he has to take medication for his unexplained anxiety. The fourth man is very similar, very similar to the third man, except he doesn't struggle with clinical anxiety. He has a healthy work-life balance, is a faithful member of his church, and has a good relationship with Jesus, good relationship with others, and good relationship with his family. But just a month ago, he went to a doctor's appointment with his wife and found out that she has only six months to live because they found an aggressive form of cancer in her lungs. And over this last month, he's watched his wife, the love of his life, waste away before his eyes. Four men, all Christians, and all radically different in personality and life situation. Now picture those four men sitting in a church, maybe like this, where they all hear the same sermon on Matthew 6, 25 through 34. The preacher, doing his best, preaches a sermon about the five ways that worry is sinful. How would each man take that? The first man would be overjoyed. He would feel vindicated for his outlook. See, I told you, you shouldn't be worried all the time. The second man would be convicted. And maybe rightly so. Worry dominates his life, and so the sermon would literally make him worry about his worry. The third man would be confused. Is he simply not trying hard enough? Does he lack faith because he has to take medication? Is his anxiety a result of some sin that he's not aware of? He walks out of the church tired and weary. The fourth man, well, the fourth man wants to punch the preacher in the nose. <laughs> not worry? He says, is the preacher not aware of what's going on? Has the preacher not seen my wife? Does he not know she's dying? Is the preacher not aware of my life situation? Sometimes all a man can do in the face of this kind of stress and suffering is worry. What am I going to do without her? Why would God take her from me? Not worry. What garbage. The four men leave the church, and three out of the four are left worse off than they walked in the door that morning. And this is where we are today. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. 
It's a joyful text and one that should assuage our anxiety and worry. But all too often, preachers make the mistake of not addressing the nuances here, the the cultural nuances. It's tricky because it's easy to take a good principle like what Jesus tells us here and draw it out of proportion without good explanation. The problem is that we don't understand what Jesus is talking about when he uses words like anxiety and worry because all of us bring our own baggage to those words. We think we understand, but we forget that point. We have our own definitions of worry. Right, the first man sees worry as anything that causes stress at all, as if Jesus is teaching that we should strive to live stress-free as best as we can. The second man sees worry as his whole way of living, which is probably true. The third man sees worry as his clinical struggle with anxiety. And the fourth man sees worry as all of the negative emotions going along with his current situation. So instead of making that mistake, of assuming we know what we're talking about, let's start with a more basic question. How does Jesus define anxiety? We're going to walk through the text looking for an answer to that question. And then we're going to ask... What is its opposite along the way? How is a Christian supposed to live if anxiety and worry, according to Christ, is not the way to live? So let's search for Jesus' definition of worry. Jesus' definition of worry. Our English translations can't agree on how to translate that word here. The ESV says, do not be anxious. That's what we're working with today. But anxiety is a loaded term in our culture maybe even more so than the word worry, which is the word the NIV uses, if you have the NIV this morning. But the word worry almost sounds too trivial, right? As if Jesus is only condemning people who are unnecessarily worried about small things. But the things Jesus talks about in the text don't look like small things. They're big things, basic provisions, like food and drink and clothing. So... If worry is the right word, then it's not a small worry. And the King James, if you have that, even says, take no thought for your life, which is really interesting and potentially helpful moving forward. But surely Jesus isn't teaching thoughtlessness, like the answer to anxiety is not to think at all. So it's clear that if we're going to understand what Jesus means by anxiety, we're going to have to let him define it, right? Are you willing to do this with me? We bring too much to this word, especially in the year of our Lord 2023, where worry and anxiety seem to be everywhere around us. Let's look back at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you. Okay, stop. We have a clue. Already, we have a clue. Jesus says, therefore, which connects it back to verse 24. Remember last week, Pastor Andrew helpfully showed us that in verses 19 through 24, we're given the choice between two things. Given the choice between two things three times. Heavenly and earthly treasure, light and darkness, God and money. And our text today comes right on the heels of the statement, you cannot serve God and money. But there's an obvious remaining question. Sure. We shouldn't store up treasures on earth, fine, but what about our normal needs? Food and clothing, etc. 
Chapter 6 has been building up to this point. A constant theme has been that of possessions. We're told in verses 4, 6, and 18 that we will receive a reward from the Father when he sees us give, pray, and fast in secret. You'll remember that. But just in case we're tempted to think that those rewards are earthly treasures, Jesus tells us in verse 20 to lay up treasures in heaven. And then in verse 24, that we cannot serve God and money. Okay? So the rewards aren't earthly. It's not going to be cash. But does that mean that God won't provide for us at all? That's a good question. And that's what our text deals with today. Jesus tells us not to worry about those things because God is our master. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So here's the first thing we learn about Jesus' definition of worry. Worry does not have God as its master. Worry, according to Jesus, does not have God as its master. Whatever it is, it's something that God's servants should not engage in. So the opposite of worry, so far, must be something that comes from the right foundation with the Lord. The right relationship with the Lord. It must be something that sees God as master and serves him rather than earthly treasures. Something that stores up treasure in heaven. So that's a good starting point to understand worry and its opposite. Now verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus will use a very similar analogy in chapter 10 when he says that his disciples are worth much more than many sparrows. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. And Jesus does this throughout our passage today. An argument from the greater to the lesser. If this, then how much more that? A good example from the Bible is Romans 8.32. Many of you know this by heart. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the logic? It's a massive thing to have Jesus die for sins. So why worry about the rest? Why worry about all these things? In the context of Romans 8, all things is our completed salvation. Why worry if Jesus went to the cross? So Jesus is using a similar argument here for throughout our whole text today. Do you see how God provides for the birds? They don't labor in the fields. They don't store up grain in barns, yet God provides for them day by day. How much more will he provide for those he's adopted into his family, that he's called children of God? Are you not of more value than birds? So the second piece of this definition is this. Worry misunderstands our value in the eyes of God. Worry misunderstands our value in the eyes of God. Are you not of more value than they? Of course you are. 
Of course you are. You matter to the Lord. And if he provides food for birds, won't he provide for his servants? Amen? Jesus wants his disciples to flee from the temptation to think that they don't matter very much to God. And that is a real temptation. How many of us have been tempted to think something like, God doesn't really think of me. He doesn't really see me. He doesn't really remember me. He doesn't really care about my suffering. But these are lies from the pit of hell. Are you not of more value in the eyes of God than birds? Of course you are. So the opposite of worry then must be an attitude that rightly understands our worth in the eyes of God. It is a confidence that we have worth to him, even if we don't always feel worthy. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Now that's some classic advice right there, right? What good is worry? I'm sure you've heard something like this before if you are a worrier. Worry isn't going to fix it. Worry isn't going to help. Worry isn't going to get you out of the situation, so on and so forth. But Jesus is careful about what he says here in his wording. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The rhetorical answer is nobody. Nobody. Nobody can add any length of time to their lives by being anxious. So here's the third thing that we need to learn about Jesus' definition of worry. Worry does not lengthen our lives. Simple but true. Worry for Jesus has no actual real-world uses. It doesn't serve us. And if it's not doing us any good, then it must be doing us harm. But here's where the rubber meets the road. What does Jesus mean by anxiety exactly? We don't have enough of a definition yet to know what is doing us harm. I can quote all kinds of statistics at you about the rise of anxiety in our post-pandemic world. I can talk about the rise of clinical anxiety amongst teenage girls after the invention of social media. But is Jesus talking about the same thing? We need more. But whatever the opposite of anxiety according to Jesus is, it must do us good. It must even lengthen our lives. So let's keep going. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus gives us another example, much like the first Except instead of birds, we have flowers. Birds don't worry about what they'll eat, and flowers don't worry about what they'll wear. Food and drink may be the most basic things a person needs. We can understand that. But we may find it strange that 
Jesus includes clothes on a list of most basic needs. Maybe in our culture we'd say shelter or warmth or something like that. Of course, clothing protects us from the elements, right? It keeps us warm. It's another layer of protection against the hot sun. Protects our skin from bumps and bruises. But without clothing, not only are we exposed to the elements, but we're exposed to the world. The eyes of the world. A basic need for those in the time of Christ was the protection of their dignity and their modesty. It's only a culture far removed from that mindset that doesn't quite grasp why Jesus would include clothes on a list of most basic provisions. That's where we are. Nevertheless, we're given a picture of wildflowers and grass. They're so beautifully arrayed, Jesus says, that they exceed the glory of Solomon, King Solomon, who had all the wealth in the world, exceed his fancy robes and all of his jewelry. This is the second meditation upon creation that Jesus encourages his disciples towards. We're supposed to look at the birds and see the hand of God in provision. We're supposed to look at flowers and see the beauty of God in his creation. And we're supposed to be reminded that if God thus clothes lilies, will he not clothe me? If that which goes on to be used as fuel for ovens is beautifully arrayed, beyond description, will not we be? Again, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser but it should make us stop and think for a moment. Our world tells us we really are not greater than birds, that we don't matter much more than lilies, that everything's made up of the same atoms and molecules and so on. But the world tells us, the word tells us, that God has set man over creation, that we are his workmanship and his delight, That we have even been given dominion over creation. Now that doesn't give us license to dominate creation. But these verses should remind us of its beauty. And of our place in creation. If God cares for birds and flowers. Which he does. They are on his mind. How much more will he care for us? Who are on his mind more? But it's what Jesus says next that that gives us our our next clue about what Jesus means by worry. Oh, you of little faith. This is one of Jesus's common refrains in the face of doubt. And this is the first time he says it in Matthew. He'll say it to his disciples before he calms the storm. He'll say it to Peter while he's sinking in the water. But I'm reminded of Matthew 17. Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples down below who didn't join him on the mountain are trying to cast out a demon, but they're unable to. So Jesus takes over and gets the job done real quick. And his disciples ask this, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. 
and nothing will be impossible for you. Whoa. Faith the size of a mustard seed, the littlest seed known to the disciples, would move mountains. But they were of little faith, which is tantamount to saying in in the face of that kind of mustard seed analogy, that they had no faith at all. So here's the fourth thing we learn about Jesus' definition of worry. Worry is the result of a lack of faith. For Jesus, worry is an attitude that results from too little faith. What does that mean for the opposite of worry then? Well, it must be that the opposite is a result of having faith. But faith in what? What do we place our faith in? What is Jesus telling us to believe in, to trust in? Well, all along in this text, it's been God. It's been God the Father providing. It's been the Father feeding. So Jesus is calling us to place our faith in the God who provides. Worry is the result then of not trusting that God can and will provide for those who are serving him. Faith in God and his provision gets rid of worry. Worry according to Jesus. But it's even greater than that. Let's keep going. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Jesus repeats the call to not be anxious. In fact, we see another therefore here. As a result of placing our faith in the Lord, We should then not be anxious about these basic needs, food, drink, clothing. But then Jesus adds, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. Hmm. Gentiles are anyone who's not Jewish, of course. They're anyone who does not worship the God of Israel. They're those who worship other false gods, right? They are essentially pagans. Gentiles are pagans. So here's our fifth item to add to Jesus' definition of worry. Worry is what pagans do. Right before the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Do you remember what Jesus means? The Gentiles had no assurance that their gods would listen to them at all. No assurance, no confidence. They thought that if they really prayed a lot and used a lot of big fancy words, that they could convince their puny gods to act on their behalf. Christians are not supposed to pray like that. We're supposed to rest in the knowledge that God knows what we need even before we pray, and yet we ask anyway. Jesus has a very similar thought here in verse 32. The Gentiles, again, had no assurance that their gods would provide anything for them. So they were always worried that they did something wrong or that they didn't pray enough or that their lack of provision was because their God was unhappy with them and was punishing them. So they sought after all these things because they couldn't trust their gods. But our God knows what we need. 
He knows that we need all these things. He does hear our prayers. And our punishment for sin has been poured out on Christ. So our response can't be that of the Gentiles who are constantly trying to solve their own problems. For Jesus, worry is what pagans do. But the opposite, the opposite is the assurance that God knows what we need. It's a bigger view of God. We don't need to worry because God actually hears us. Do you believe God actually hears you? He does. He hears us and he will give us exactly what we need. And now we've arrived at verse 33. Here we are. The pinnacle of this section. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. This is the last piece of the puzzle. This helps us wrap up our definition. Instead of seeking the things that the Gentiles seek with all of their hearts, minds, and souls, food, drink, and clothing, we're supposed to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So our sixth clue for Jesus' definition of worry is this. Worry has its priorities upside down. Look all the way back at verse 25. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? For the Gentile, for the pagan, or even for our modern materialist person who doesn't believe there's anything spiritual at all, the answer is no. The answer to the question of is not life more than food is no for those people. And so they seek the wrong things. They spend their lives vainly, without worth. We can think of last week's text and this week's text as closely related, and we should, of course. In fact, we wouldn't properly understand this week, 25 through 34, without last week's and vice versa. Last week's text stands as a warning to us not to store up treasure on earth. But as Andrew pointed out, the greatest point that those verses made was that we're given a new way of seeing the world. We're brought from darkness to light in Jesus. So instead of prioritizing wealth and money, we're supposed to prioritize the Lord. We're supposed to serve God as master. And this takes a complete transformation. The light of God needs to pierce the darkness of our hearts. We have to see the world as it actually is instead of fumbling around in darkness. So in order to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we need new life. We need to see the world the way God sees the world. We think that wealth and money are important. We think that food and drink and clothing are worth worrying over. But in reality, God is in control of all things. Not just as a fun thing to sing on a Sunday morning, but in truth, God is in control of all things. His kingdom will be established on earth, 
and his righteousness is your greatest possible good. His righteousness is the greatest possible good for your life. When we see the world like that, with the help of the Holy Spirit, whom we need, we won't seek after the things that moth and rust destroy. We won't even worry about our most basic provisions. We'll understand that God's plan for us is so great and lovely and good that we won't even give a second thought to food and clothes. Those will fall into place when we're rightly serving and seeking the Lord. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, these basic needs will be added to you. So this text isn't telling us just have faith and God will give you what you need. It's saying have a change of mind. See things differently. You need the light of the spirit. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and nothing else. And all these things will fall into place. Worry wrongly seeks these things as the ultimate good. Food, drink, and clothing. Worry has its priorities upside down. Worry sees life as no more than food. And the body as no more than clothing. Okay, so let's bring it all together. The whole definition. Jesus' ultimate definition of worry is this. This is what worry is according to Jesus. Worry is the worthless, faithless, and pagan result of not prioritizing the things of God and misunderstanding our value in God's eyes. Let me say that again. For Jesus, worry is, anxiety is, the worthless, faithless, and pagan result of not prioritizing the things of God and misunderstanding our value in God's eyes. According to what we read here, that's what Jesus means by worry. So let's return to our four Christian men from the beginning. The first man thinks worry is any stress at all, right? He's got the definition wrong. But that's not what Jesus means, right? Jesus doesn't mean that it's any stress. In fact, by avoiding stress, that man cannot properly say he's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The second man was probably the closest, although he needs to be given the alternative in order to move forward. The third man thought that worry and anxiety was what he was dealing with clinically, his medical issue. But worry, according to Jesus, is the result of something in the heart. It's a heart problem, not the result of a chemical imbalance. Jesus is not telling us that anxiety medication is wrong to take. So if you walk out of here feeling guilty about that, that's not my fault. Don't feel guilty. If you need that, it's okay. Although we need to take it wisely, right? We need to take any medication we take wisely and in conversation with trusted brothers and sisters in the faith and in a willingness to examine our hearts while we do it. Now, the fourth man thought that worry was all the negative emotions he was feeling about the eventual loss of his wife, as horrible as that would be. But he's really feeling grief. And for those here today experiencing grief, know that Jesus, too, was grieved. 
I would point you to John 11, where he weeps over his friend. Grief is a part of life lived after the fall that each one of us will have to encounter. And if you are grieving today, grieve well. Lament to the Lord, cry out to Him, and do so in communion with those around you. You need other people. Ultimately, worry is a result. It happens because our hearts are in the wrong place. Again, worry is the worthless, faithless, and pagan result of not prioritizing the things of God and misunderstanding our value in God's eyes. But the alternative is the exact opposite. The alternative is the exact opposite. It's this. It's a beneficial, faithful, and Christian result of rightly prioritizing God's kingdom and righteousness above all else and rightly understanding our value in God's eyes. Maybe we'll call this Christian contentment if we need a word. Contentment is a good word. It's a biblical word. But maybe it would be better to use Paul's language. So we'll call it the peace that passes all understanding. It's God's peace. It's the peace of God. Peace is the result of faith. Peace comes when we're in right relationship to the Lord. Peace is only possible through the cross of Christ. Amen? If you want peace, you need Jesus. If you want peace, you need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You need a new perspective. You need a new life in him. The peace of God can endure even when we lack our most basic provisions like food and drink and clothing. When we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in faith, peace will be our gift. So our preparation of worship this morning... Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, present your prayers before the Lord, and he will give you the peace that passes all understanding. Paul is talking to a church that is poor, that lacks provision, and yet they can have peace. When we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, peace will be our gift. We will be content with the things God has given us. Because we want what he wants. Jesus ends the section with verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So after a long theological and pastoral explanation of what worry is, Jesus ends with something a bit more proverbial, even a little bit humorous. After all that, this ends up being pretty practical advice. Life is stressful, right? We can't help but think about those stressful things. Okay, but we can take them one at a time. That's, that's the godly response, actually. It's not just good advice. This is what Jesus tells us to do. We might even say that faith is content to take each day as it comes. So if you're dealing with stress today, big stress... Take the Lord Jesus' advice. Let tomorrow be tomorrow. Focus on today. Sometimes that's easier said than done. And even that we need the peace of God for. 
So how can you live righteously before the Lord today, knowing that's your ultimate pursuit? It's time to examine your heart there. If you lack peace, the peace of God, and you feel consumed by worry, look at verse 33. That might be a new orienting principle for you. How can you obey him today? 